Thanks for listening to another life-transforming message from the team here at C3 Southwest Washington. To find out more about our church, visit c3swwa.com. So John chapter 12, verses, verse number 3, And Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with a fragrance. So today I want to talk to you just briefly about most, the most extravagant worship. That's my title. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your people. God, I thank you for the goodness that you want to work in all of our lives. You poured out your goodness over the balcony of heaven through your son into this world and into our lives. And Lord, sometimes it sits on a shelf because we don't step into it. We don't activate it, but we want to activate it. We want to see it impact us and through us, the world around us. So I pray that you'll teach us to worship well. God, to see heaven come close to this earth that desperately needs to experience you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. You can give the Lord a hand and you can be seated. Give our worship team a big hand. Thanks, Steve, and the entire team. Great job. And, uh, yeah, a couple things as we get ready to jump into the Word, just for your attention. Um, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to set aside some time this week to pray. And the reason why, you know that as we came into the new year, as we've experienced all of 2020 and the challenges of meeting, and we've been looking towards the future, what does the future look like, where are we going to meet, and who can help set up and tear down. And our team has made the expression, we're believing God for a permanent location this year. And so there will be very few properties that show up on the scene that even meet the criteria. It doesn't have to be a church, but if it's not a church, it has to be able to be zoned to take control of it, to step in and have worship. There's a specific area that we'd really like to remain in, and yet the numbers of properties that will become available in the next calendar year, might I might not need all fingers. In fact, I might only need a couple fingers to be able to express how many will come up. And there's a property that has come up available. It is a church building. It's to the south of here, a little south, farther south than we'd like to be, but around the 500 area. And so we've been uh, doing due diligence looking at this property, talking with our board of directors. We've been talking with our team, with our oversight, uh, with several pastoral friends in C3. And so we have our high-level uh, ministry team leaders and our influencers going down tonight to take a walk through this property. It meets the criteria. It's, uh, it's clean. It's got plenty of space for us, and we might be able to pull this off. So... I'll let you know more as that develops. It's kind of like anything else. If you've ever bought a house in real estate, uh, don't go on the emotional roller coaster. Pray, lean forward, try to do what you can, make offers, don't get desperate, uh, don't try to force things. But um, there's moments, anybody you bought a house and in one moment you could buy it, then the next moment you can't, then you can, then you can't. If you ride that roller coaster, it'll destroy you before you ever move in. You need to save your energy for when you go to move in, right? So uh, we'll take you on that journey as that develops, okay? But keep praying. Um, also, next month, our series is going to be entitled Family, and to kind of bring you up to speed, what that's going to look like, it's going to be really exciting. There are going to be different messages in every service. All eight services in February, four Sundays, there'll be a different message in the first service from the second service, and in some cases, in the gathering, there will be two messages in, each, in some of the gatherings. So there's approximately like 16 different messages that will get preached all along the lines of family, some dating things, some being single, 
parenting, all sorts of stuff. And that way, whatever gathering you're in, you can also tune in online. You can listen to the, our, our podcast and be able to download some of that. We'll have some guest speakers coming in from the outside. Some of our very own family members here will be speaking as well. So we're super excited about that, right? It's good. It'll be good. Okay. Okay. So let's jump into our uh, our our thought here today. This idea of uh, it, that fragrant worship. Um, how many of you have experienced times where it's really really easy to worship God? You just step in. The lighting's correct. The song is the right song. We like when the worship team gets my favorites. You know your favorite song, and people are responding accordingly. And I feel good. I feel like worshiping. And just all clicks and it all comes together. There's been a few times that I've been able to go to like a Hillsong concert or a passion conference or, or a Bethel service. And man, you just step in and it's just, it's just going on. You know that you're going to experience the presence of God. And it's effortless and we, stand, we step in and it's a beautiful moment. And those are beautiful moments. Now, I want to be honest with you. I don't know that they accomplish everything that we think that they accomplish, because there's a principle that I want to share with you this morning to help you understand there is a tremendous value in worshiping God when the atmosphere is not favorable, when the song is not the right song, when you don't feel great. Sometimes the greatest moments in worship are when nothing else is lining up and everything is pushing back against your worship. In fact, as we look at the story of David, David wanted to build an altar to the Lord. There were some things in his world that was going on that needed to be shifted, and so he decided to worship. And in the process, he went to a property that was owned by a man named Arona, and he and the man while he was there said, King David, what are you doing here? And the king said, I'm going to build an altar. I'm going to offer a sacrifice, and I'm believing God to impact our nation. And so the man Arona said, oh, no, no, king, I'll give you the land. I will give you the cows. I will, in fact, give you the stock around them for burning for the altar, and it will cost you nothing. And there's this great scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24. But the king said to Arona, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. And he goes on to say, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord that cost me nothing. You hear what, hear what the scripture says there? I'm not going to offer God something that costs me nothing. Now, it's nice when it's easy. It's nice when it's free. David had that perfect moment. I mean, the band was there. The song was right. The lighting was set. It was effortless. He was just going to step into the moment and come into the presence of God. And yet he recognized that was not the experience that was most beneficial in this case. In fact, here's a quote for you that they'll throw up on the screen. It says, the price we pay in worship is often connected to the impact worship has in and around us. Think about that for a moment. The price that you pay in your worship brings a different impact. For those of you who have fought hard to see a goal experienced, it makes the goal even so much more valuable. And sometimes David understood this free and easy worship, while it might have an emotional dividend, it does not necessarily shift everything in the world that we're looking to see happen. In fact, let me go a little bit further and say this, that it's not about buying a blessing. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I am talking about is the aligning of ourselves for our world to experience the blessing of God. 
So sometimes there's these moments in our lives where all is not well, it's not the right song, and we step into that spot in that moment and say, you know what, I'm going to pay the price to experience God's presence, and when we do, there is a far greater impact, not only in us, but then in the world around us. Because if you read a little farther, David, in the, in the following verses, it says David paid for the threshing floor, and he paid for the oxens, and he gave money for it, and David built an altar there to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And here's the last phrase that's so valuable. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague. That thing that needed to be shifted in his world was averted from Israel. You got to grab onto this, that our worship isn't just about our, our interaction with God. In the time of interaction brings a shift to the world around us. It shifts our families. It shifts our finances. It shifts our thought process. It shifts our relationships. We don't just worship so that we can capture the heart of God and God can capture our heart. We shift because once our hearts are captured, that capture causes a change on the world that we live in. And so it's not just a me God thing. It's a me God and then everyone else thing that takes place. And we look at the scripture we started off with out of the book of John, Mary, you can see the same principle take place. Uh, Mary walks in with a pint of pure nard, it's expensive perfume. She pours it on Jesus' feet. She wipes his feet with her hair, and the house is filled with the fragrance of perfume. It's, it's an amazing act of worship that she has just engaged in. I don't want to measure your worship this morning, but I want to challenge you to begin to consider measuring your own personal worship. Because there's the, the, the possibility that in our engagement and whatever our objectives are as we step in to worship God, that we might be just barely getting ourselves off the ground and accomplishing about that much in the overall spectrum of really the heart of God, wanting to not only have an interaction with you, but to shift the world around you. And definitely Mary shifted the world. We're reading the story of Mary because her worship was so moving to all of heaven. You understand that she offered perfume that was worth a year's wages. In our modern-day economy, it's like you walking in with $55,000 and pouring it out on the Savior's feet. I don't, I don't, have, I don't think I have anything in my house worth $55,000. I, I drive used cars. $55,000, that's amazing. I think we might have a $100 bottle of per perfume that I bought for a Valentine's Day that might have been forgotten. But $55,000 worth of perfume. Now, there's several other accounts throughout Scripture, and you discover different aspects of this moment of worship. It's pretty profound. At one point, she also pours the perfume on his head. She's weeping from the depths of her soul. Her tears are getting on Jesus' feet. She begins to wash his feet with her tears and dry his feet with her hair. And just like David, she immediately gets pushback. There are people in the room who say, she shouldn't be in here. Some of you get that pushback in your own experience. You begin to try to worship, but there's this nagging voice that says, you're not worthy. You shouldn't be worshiping. You haven't done what you should be doing. You know what you said earlier on the way in the car? You, you can't raise your hands. Now, there was immediate pushback for her. It went on to say, that woman shouldn't be touching him. Heaven's going to reject you if you try to worship. You don't deserve to worship like other people. 
The pushback continues on. Uh, uh, she shouldn't be allowed to not only touch him, but her offering is actually a complete waste. What difference is that going to make if you pour $55,000 on the Savior's feet? What's the big deal if you actually clap? What's the big deal if you actually raise your hands? It doesn't really make a difference. Are these only whispers that I've heard, or are they whispers that you hear? Well, it's not really that big of a deal, right? The money could have been spent and given to the poor. Always watch out with that one when it comes to spiritual things. That is the heart of Judas speaking, okay? God's not cheap. God doesn't need your money, but, but, but our money gifts do, does express a value depending on where we're expressing it from, right? And so her actions, let me give you a couple quick things, a couple quick thoughts about what she did. Her actions allowed her to experience Jesus in a way that no one else in that room did. It's powerful. Your worship matters because it's you unlocking the door. And you might experience the residue of my worship, the worship team's worship, or the corporate group in the room. But your encounter is based on your, your, your gift that you bring, the payment that you engage in. And that opens the door for a level of, of experience that only you can experience. So it does matter. When we walk out of the house of God and we're like, I didn't really feel anything. I didn't really experience anything. It really wasn't that great. I promise you some of that is falls at your feet. Yes, we always need to strive to do a better job, sing relevant songs, to be better with our musicianship, to be better with our screens and our lighting and all that type of thing. But hear me for a second. Your intimacy, your experience with God is within your hands. It's within your reach. It's within your grasp. And, and you might have bought into this thing waiting for it to happen to you, but when you reach out and have the ability to unlock the door with your worship, you get what you lean into, okay? And she experienced an amazing thing. Her worship deeply moved heaven. Jesus responded. He was overwhelmed. He said, this story will be told every time the gospel is preached. And I stand back and I think to myself, man, this, is, this grabs the inside of me. I want my worship to move heaven. I want all of heaven to see all of you. But when God looks down as we gather together, I want him to see me as well. I want him to be moved by my expressions. And there's so many things with that that are so important. It's not just the outward physical. It's your soul connected to it. You're using your emotion and connecting with your spirit. So I don't want to just make it sound like it's how high did you raise your hands, but certainly your, your engagement, that price that you are pushing out, has an impact because that's so much of why this woman was responded to. Notice also that her world shifts there is a spiritual shift that's remarkable that happens. She might not even have realized it that morning. Now, she's a woman, as we understand, it's probably Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And she was also a woman filled with demons at some point, even though her family is incredibly honored, respected, and very wealthy. We discover that she was filled with a lot of demons, and somewhere in the interaction, Jesus set her free. And in the process, she, she still felt unforgiven, unworthy. She was a woman who was known in the community based on that attack of the wicked one, probably engaged in activities she wasn't proud of. People don't always do the things that they do just because they want to do them. Sometimes they find themselves in positions where the, the enemy of their souls has the upper hand and forces them regularly into a direction. They're pushed 
They're, they're, they're redirected in their heart's desire to do the right thing because the enemy has taken ground in their lives. They get pushed and backed into corners. And so Jesus shifted something amazing in this moment of worship. Now, hear me for a minute. I believe in counseling. I believe in good input. I believe in doctors. I believe in whatever help I can get from the outside. But I want to tell you, help from heaven trumps all of these things. She needed forgiveness, and that is not a pill that ever can be given to you. It's not a pep talk. Jesus, with his words, said, you are forgiven. Now, your mom can tell you that. Your dad can tell you that. Sometimes you can even try to listen to your pastor to be able to hear that. I've sat with people and who have wept with me and said, but Steve, you don't understand what I've done. And I've wanted to lean back across and say, but you don't understand what I've done. But the thing that changes all of that is to hear in that moment, heaven say, you are forgiven. Have you heard those words? I'm telling you, when heaven says, I see you, when heaven says, I love you, when heaven says, I forgive you, listen, it's a done deal. There's no going back to that discussion. You might, your mom might need to pep talk you again, but once heaven speaks it, it's truth, and it penetrates the enemy's approach, and where does she experience this? It's in worship. I can tell you my most significant moments where God has put something in me that needed to be there or taken something out that shouldn't have been there, I wish I could say it's re-listening to my sermons. It's not. That might set the stage, but it's the moment that God whispers to me. It's the moment that he speaks, and I find so many times as we press in and worship God that that's available. So her world shifts. Also, the fragrance of her worship fills the house, and impacts the atmosphere for everyone else. Now, you might think that your worship doesn't matter, but it does. We really challenge our worship leaders to make sure that you're engaged in worship at all times. Why? Because it's not just about, you got to understand this, it's not just about your attention being directed to heaven. You are a thermostat that sets the temperature for other people. I watched this morning. I was sitting in the back row while our worship team was practicing, and I was clapping my hands, and little Ben, my grandson, came in and sat down next to me and began to clap his hands as well. When the song came to the end, I started to go like this. He started to go like this. My actions impact other people. And if you're a leader, you'll always understand you'll have to go a little farther than your own comfort zone to invite people to come anywhere near close to that. It's not about a performance. It's about leadership. Mom, dad, man, be aggressive in your worship. You know why? There's eyeballs watching. There's other people. Your freedom in worship actually gives permission to those who deep down in want to step in, but they don't feel the permission to do it. And I pray if there's anything that's a quality of our church is those people love to worship God, and when they do, you can tangibly sense his presence. Amen? Okay, so you're on, you're on board. Let me get, let me actually, can I get into the message? You ready to go? Come on, let people at home, because they're wanting to know, they can't see you, but we're, we're ready, right? Okay, so let me give you some of the most fragrant moments in worship, and I originally had about 15, and uh, I've narrowed it down to three, and I probably will only get to one, so you might have to watch the second service. Well, actually, we don't record it, so you won't be able to do that. Okay, the most fragrant moments of worship, number one, when you don't feel like it. 
Mm, this, is, this probably applies to everyone in the room. Uh, feelings have become our idol of today. We talk about them. We chase them above all else. Feelings in today's economy are more valuable to the discussion than facts and statistics. They just are. It's wrong, but they are. You can spout off all kinds of facts, and somebody will tell you, yeah, but I feel. I've had people tell me that may be true, but my feelings are just as true. So what I would say to you is that feelings are a horrible captain for any vessel. In fact, you will find if you ignore your feelings and do right actions, your feelings will get in line because feelings should be the caboose and not the engine, right? When it comes to exercise, you know what I'm talking about. Again, I worked out this week, and I didn't feel like it, but five minutes after I was done, I was flexing in the mirror, and uh, of course, uh, anyways. Um, our feelings will often lead us into the exact opposite direction of where we should be going. They'll lie to us the entire way, and yet we'll get rewarded in our emotions. We built a number of houses outside of this nation in Panama and Oaxaca. And one of the books that we've given to people, given to us, is a book called Toxic Charity. Because we as first world people go to a second and third world nation and we show up and our emotions kick in. We feel sad. We feel guilty. We start taking our clothes off, our underwear off, our shoes off. We build the house. We're now selling our, we're calling home, telling our wife, sell the house, calling our husband, sell the house. We're giving it away to the poor. We're going to move down here. And we actually end up feeling extremely rewarded in our emotions by all of our actions. And the book Toxic Charity reveals that actually your actions are hurting the situation. We go down to help and to train people to grow in their ability to help themselves. We don't go down as the benevolent rich uncle who then just lavishes gifts upon people who, quite honestly, don't even necessarily want the gifts, have no use for the gifts that we're actually giving. In fact, my experience when we were in Panama is the people of Panama, though they may be second, third world resource-wise, family relationships and actual joy day-to-day -day outweighs ours extremely, okay? And while I may have felt emotional giving away my $150 pair of boots, it did not help the situation even though I felt, are you hearing me? even though I felt like I was helping the situation. Especially when it comes to spiritual disciplines and acts of obedience, we have bought into the, quote, unquote, listen to this, I'm going to wait until I really feel like it so I can do it from my heart. We get mad at worship leaders because they tell us to raise our hands. Well, no, I'm not going to just do it because he says so. I'm going to wait until I feel, there's that word, I feel it because I don't want to be, disingenuous. Here's another quote for you. One of the biggest traps is to think that if you worship when you don't feel like it, it won't be genuine. What other activity do we apply that logic to? I'm just going to wait till I feel like going to work. Go ahead and go to school when you feel like it. I'll save money when I feel like it. I'll eat my vegetables when I feel like it. But we understand that when we do right things, the correct emotion fills behind us. If I did all the things this week that I felt like doing, some of us might not even be here, myself included, right? You, try, you, you understand what I'm saying? But we ignore the emotion we press in to do the thing that is most valuable. Worship, this, is, this I think is so valuable. Worship because you don't feel like it, but you know that it will shift your feelings and ultimately move mountains. Yeah. 
Amen? Am I talking to the right group of people? Okay, let me move on to the second one. Uh, worship, it's very fragrant when you have sinned. Now, this is going to rub some of you the wrong way because you, like me maybe, and I, I, my parents were great with discipline. It was stern, it was swift, it was compact, and then it was done. But as a kid, I would, after being disciplined, very often sit on my bed, and I think this is appropriate, a right body language after you've sinned, and I would wait until someone came into the room and said, what are you, what are you doing? My dad would often do this. What are you doing? Uh, go play. We're done. And so then I would go and play. There's this internal thing in us, especially in a relationship with God, but certainly with other people, that when there's a conflict, when there's a breach, the easiest thing to do is run away. Genesis chapter 3, Adam sins, and what does he do? Come on, he hides. What do you typically like to do when you sin? You hide. People, when they find themselves in sin, they begin to pull back from relationships, do whatever it takes to break relationships so that they can disappear because they feel shame. They feel guilt. When the reality is we should be doing the exact opposite. When you hurt someone, run into the relationship. When you sin against God, run into the relationship, especially when it comes to God. He is the one that has the resources to fix it. You will never fix your sin on your own. It's never going to happen. No one's ever experienced forgiveness aside from God's grace. So we run in. Well, the person I love about who really had a great handle on this was David. After sitting horrifically, not just with Bathsheba, he had Bathsheba's husband killed. Okay? I mean, there's horrible things this man has done. Like many of us believers, we've done some horrible things. I'm not justifying any of our actions, but I do want to focus on why God loved the heart of David, because when David sins, what does he do? He doesn't go hide in the bushes. He runs directly into God. Immediately when he's confronted, he says, I have sinned. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, or 12, verses 16 through 17, in his sin, David, this is what scripture says. And I pray that this will be your verse, my verse as we sin, because you're probably going to sin. Hopefully not this way. But you're still going to sin, Right? You're still going to get aggravated and lose your cool. You're going to be angry. You're going to say something you shouldn't. You're going to press a button to just tick somebody off because you want, you, you're mad that you're not getting your way. So it's, it says David sought the Lord. David sought God. He fasted. He lay on the ground all day and all night. People came around and tried to encourage him to raise off the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat any food. He goes on in Psalm 51 to talk to God. Some of the things that he asks God to do are all indicative of coming close to God, not running away. He says, God, blot out my transgression. In other words, I've got dirt all over me. Could you reach out and blot? Touch me. Not, not don't touch me. Not I'm hiding. It's blot out. Touch me. He goes on to say, wash me, cleanse me, purge me, uphold me, create in me a clean spirit. Cast me not away from your presence. He recognizes that sin wants to push us out of the presence of God, and the appropriate response is to run into the presence of God. I want to challenge you. When you feel the least worthy, race into the presence of God. That is the lie of the enemy, and God has the antidote. It's always found in his presence. Only God can do for you what you need after sin. 
let me move to the to I think yeah let me move to the let me skip the next verse and let me go to the final point uh, worship God it's most fragrant when you're under attack it's so valuable I don't know about you but when it's the dog fight's about to go I'm not really thinking about oh let's worship God I'm thinking about I hope I live and, and what's my strategy and that's not just a fight with maybe someone physically that's a fight financially circumstantially, maybe relationally, business venture, that fight, that attack, that thing that's coming against us to take what is rightfully ours, it doesn't necessarily evoke a moment of worship. But what I challenge you to do, it's when you're under attack, especially to press in to a moment of worship. It becomes incredibly fragrant. It's inviting God into the battle. In fact, when you look through the Old Testament, Almost every time the Israelites began to begin a battle or they went to take ground or they were forming an attack to experience what God had promised to give them, but they were going to have to fight for it, they put in the series of the army the worshipers and singers and musicians out in front. That should be a lesson for you. Before you fight a battle, make sure you press into a season of prayer and worship. That's why we set up this year, November, before we came into the new year, that November fast, so we could press in for a season of worship, knowing as we stepped into the new year, we would then have the armies of God aligned with our physical armies so that we could win the day. That's such an important thing. Before you go in to deal with that really heavy, maybe you have to go in for court. Before you go into court, make sure you press into worship and bring the army of God with you. Not that you are trying to beat someone else. That's really not where the battle is with flesh and blood. Where the battle is is that God fights for your cause and his best is downloaded into your life. The attack of people are going to be real. There's going to be people who don't like you. I don't care how many anti-bullying uh, lectures that we hear, as valuable as they are, the world is always going to be full of bullies. There are going to be people who will attack you. But when, we, when they are attacking... That's when we need to respond first with the battle in worship to experience what God has for the battle. The attack of circumstances, anybody here, will be very real. But circumstances can be shifted. And they can be shifted so often in worship. The Old Testament is filled with that, as is the New Te Testament. Let me say this. There's also going to be spiritual attacks. Now, it's not a demon on every doorknob. We can't, ah, I have no money in my bank account. The enemy's attacking me. Well, it could be that you just spend too much money. The devil that you're talking about is you. It's the one that you know best. But sometimes, let's, let's, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. You understand that there's some spiritual attacks against your life? Here's a quote for you. Normal life can be incredibly challenging. But there will be times when the challenge is much more than just normal life. Learn to discern the difference between a challenge and a spiritual attack. At first, you might not know the difference. It might take you a while. But there's a thing that God wants to give us all, a thing called discernment, that allows you to step into a situation, and while it looks to be one thing, you will discern that it is actually something else. Uh, do you understand that when the enemy attacks you, he doesn't just show up and say, hey, it's me. There's a flashcard out in the driveway. I'm coming to attack. So often a spiritual attack over your life will come in the form of normal circumstances. 
normal, seemingly day-to-day things that grab onto you, and then you begin to try to fight them in the natural when in reality they're actually spiritual. Mm. It's a little spooky. But at the same time, it's very, very real. Luke chapter 11, verse, or 13, verses 11 through 13, it talks about a woman there who had a disabling spirit. There was a spirit, I don't know how, but it had locked into this woman's life. And in locking into her life, the strategy wasn't to terrorize her like, uh, what's one of the spooky movies that are out that people watch these days? I don't know, it's uh, paranormal activity or whatever. The covered doors aren't flying open. The impact of this attack on this particular woman was actually physical. Do you know that there are some times when you think it's possible the medical condition that you're facing might not actually be medical because here in the scripture, it says there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over. She could not fully straighten herself. And we've read about other people in the scripture like this who spend a lifetime of money going to a doctor for a healing, which is actually not a healing that's necessary. This person is under attack. Hmm. It's always interesting to me. It's always the breadcrumbs that it's actually an attack of the enemy when I'm trying to combat this in a way that makes total sense But no matter what I do, it won't shift. I begin to say, hmm, Arsenio Hall. Things that make you go, hmm. Some of you are like, who's Arsenio Hall? Um, um, Notice that when Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said, woman, you are freed from your disability. And immediately he laid hands on her and she was made straight and she glorified God. It does not say that he healed her. It said he did spiritual battle. He commanded the spirit to leave. I want to, I want to challenge you to begin to look at your own life. Sometimes, sometimes it would be great if we could just discern, because the question is, well, am I under spiritual attack? Or is this just a natural thing that happens that I need to overcome? And I'll tell you, there's one or two ways you can figure it out. You can, number one, you can have a spirit of discernment. And if you don't have that, I would challenge you to worship God. And bring your worship close to where that thing is. Because the enemy responds to the presence of God every time. I have watched as there have been people who have walked into our church family. uh, One family in particular, their child had a physical condition. And the doctors couldn't figure out what it was. But every time they walked into the church, there was a physical shift in their condition. Every time we prayed, they got better And it was unexplainable, but then it also got worse later on. And you begin to discover that there is a spiritual attack that is happening in this place. So the question might be if you have an attack going on against your life. And those attacks often show up in our world in extreme forms. I I agree 100%, you know, um, panic or, or discouragement, depression can absolutely be physical. It can be an issue if you're not sleeping well, you're not taking care of yourself. There's another affliction that can elicit panic and and anxiety. But I'll also say, as we look through the scriptures, there is a spirit of panic, there is a spirit of fear, there is a spirit of anxiety, there is an attack of the enemy that pushes hard to invoke those things. 
And unfortunately, the way our, and I'm not trying to be controversial here, but unfortunately, the way our pharmaceutical world works, especially in the United States, there's a lot of money in prescribing medications, although the heart of a doctor would never be not for your healing. It's just the way the, the universe works, it seems like, in the economy that we live in. And sometimes giving you something that makes you feel better but doesn't fix you does two things. A, it makes you feel better. And the second thing is, it keeps you as a loyal customer. And I would just challenge you, whether you're talking about anxiety, discouragement, fear, the enemy can attack your finances. He can attack you with a, a spirit of wrong thinking, of poverty, a fear of what will happen if I was actually generous? I might not have enough money. I've watched people who, I had a person hand me money one time and it was a reasonable amount of money, but it wasn't a $50,000 bottle of perfume. In fact, it was maybe one one hundredth of what they actually made in a year, but it's the first time that they ever did it. But as they handed it over, I could see the look on their face. It was like, it was like being dragged across glass. It was so deeply painful because it worked against everything, every construct that had been built in their life because of some poverty they experienced as a child. I was excited because they were fighting against that. And so their offering, though it wasn't huge, it was actually like those copper coins because of what it was really costing them at that moment. It was a powerful moment. And so there are these moments where, even in Scripture, where you don't feel like worshiping when you've been attacked. But man, what a great moment to worship. Because when you're attacked, it invites God into the battle. And now he's fighting for you. He's giving you marching orders. And if the attack is actually the enemy, the enemy behind the scenes, he's going to bring the resources necessary for you to escape the clutches of the attack. And not so that your enemy's consumed, but so that the enemy is pushed out of your life. You can further step into relationships and family and health and right thinking. Stand with me. I want to read you a final verse. We're going to worship a little bit more. There was a woman in 1 Samuel named Hannah who her life was void of children. She longed to have children and she was unable to. It's uh, common throughout scripture. It's becoming more common in our generations. I was talking with somebody not long ago and I asked her, so you done having kids? And they said, we wish we weren't, but we might be. So we had a little dialogue and read an article this week that was just talking about the foods we eat, the world that we're living in, fights fertility and all of that. This woman in this particular case, I don't know what the reason was, but in her lowest moment, her discouragement of not being able to have the thing that she believed God had for her. I believe God wants to give you the desires of your heart. Not, not maybe a bigger Cadillac, but a, a child to raise for the glory of God is not a, not a Cadillac. Something much more valuable. In the process, she began to worship God in the temple in a way that the priest thought she was drunk. She was sobbing. She was crying. She was on the ground. Her hands were in the air. She looked like a drunk woman. And Eli came by and he rebuked her and said, it's improper to be drinking in the house of God. She said, oh, oh, sir, that's not the case. I've been pouring my heart out to God in worship because I don't have a child. 
and it shifted him. And it shifted heaven. Her worship moved the heart of the priest and moved the heart of heaven. And he said, rise, go home. This time next year, you will give birth to a son. That moment of worship was so powerful that not only did that next year, that truth come to play, but also several years later, we read this verse, 1 Samuel chapter 2, 21. Indeed, the Lord visited this woman and she conceived and she bore three sons and two daughters. All of you, we know Samuel. We don't know these other kids, but let me tell you what, she gave up that son Samuel and yet was able to retain in her home these other children. Worship shifted her physical circumstances. So I want to just invite you into this moment to become a worshiper who knows how to step into key moments. I want you to close your eyes where you're at, and I want you just to dedicate your heart to becoming a worshiper of God, someone who presses in. I want you right where you're standing with your eyes closed to begin to raise your hands and use your words and invite the Spirit of God to come upon you and to allow you to experience freedom, the freedom of expression, the the freedom of speaking out your praise to God, the freedom of crying out your song to heaven, the freedom to be able to express, regardless of who's in the room, regardless of what you've been through, regardless of the battle, regardless of the difficulty, I will worship God. My worship is powerful. It brings a closer, closer intimacy with God that moves the heart of God, but shifts my life, shifts my circumstances, and radically impacts the people around me in the room and in generations to come. Generations are impacted by my worship today. It impacts my education. It impacts my career. It will impact my job performance, my financial flow of of, of God, your, your, your generosity towards me, it will enable my relationships to be the stronger. So Lord, I dedicate myself right here, right now, to being a worshiper of you, God. I dedicate my heart and my soul right now to worshiping you in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our pastors, leaders, and what we do at C3 Church, visit our website at c3swwa.com.